This is a Federal News Network podcast. The U.S. Military Academy at West Point and the Office of the Assistant Secretary of the Army for Installations, Energy, and Environment. They've formed a partnership. Together, they want to establish a new entity called the Sustainable Infrastructure, Resilience, and Climate Consortium. Here with what that's all about, West Point Assistant Professor of Mechanical Engineering, Todd Davidson. Mr. Davidson, good to have you with us. Thanks for having me on. Well, what's going on here, this new consortium? Let's back up to the partnership with the Office of the Secretary of Defense. How does this all work? So I think maybe it's important to put some of this in some quick context, understanding the importance of this topic. So the focus of CERC, Sustainable Infrastructure Resilience and Climate Consortium, is to try to help ensure that the DOD or the Department of Army and the DOD more broadly can help develop leaders and inspire leaders of character that can tackle these challenging topics far into the future. And within the context of this problem set, I think it's really important to recognize some of the aspects that we have faced in uh, war fighting environments in previous years, some of which have included, you know, the American people spending two, three, maybe even $400 per gallon of fuel to get to the front lines of Afghanistan. It could have been on the order of 50% of casualties in Afghanistan associated with supply lines and fuel lines. It could have been that on the order of about half or more of the fuel consumed by Abrams tanks was spent while they were idling as opposed to in combat. These are challenging topics associated with the warfighting capability of U.S. forces, which is directly related to trying to reduce the energy and water consumption needs of our military. On top of that, our installations and operational energy requirements face increasing challenges associated with building sustainable infrastructure, creating resilient infrastructure, and then addressing many of the potential looming challenges associated with climate. So we here at the Academy, in partnership with the Assistant Secretary of the Army for Installations, Energy, and Environment, have established what you noted, which is called CERC the Sustainable Infrastructure Resilience and Climate Consortium, to try to help train and educate cadets on these immense challenges that are associated with reducing our environmental footprints, reducing costs, but critically also increasing our mission capability and our warfighting capability. Well, by the way, at AUSA, I did see what they call an Abrams X tank, which is hybrid. There's batteries and engine in it. The Army hasn't started buying them, but I guess that's kind of where things are going. So... The word CERC has as part of its components consortium. So besides the two entities, the OSD and West Point, who do you envision being as part of this consortium? So the word consortium was very purposefully used because it's an interdisciplinary effort across campus here at West Point. So it's pulling together multiple departments that have basically deep expertise in the fields of sustainability and resilience and climate. Three of those primary partners are the Department of Chemistry and Life Sciences, CLS, the Department of Civil and Mechanical Engineering, which is the department which I reside in, and then the Department of Geography and Environmental Engineering. So those three primary partners helped establish CERC, but the goal of establishing this entity, this sort of central meeting node for work here at the Academy, is that multiple departments, multiple centers, can all collaborate on interdisciplinary issues associated with everything associated with CERC, so on sustainable infrastructure, resilience, and climate. And that's intended because this challenge 
is not siloed in any individual topic or any field of study. There's everything from engineering issues to climate issues to management of water to political and uh, human aspects of the challenges that we're facing. We're speaking with Todd Davidson. He's Assistant Professor of Mechanical Engineering and Deputy Director of the Center for Innovation and Engineering at West Point. And it strikes me that the military requirements in these areas connected to sustainability and climate are a little bit more challenging, perhaps, than in the private sector. For example, people that have electric cars, well, you put up with the fact that it can only go so far, and then you're stuck till it charges, and so it's everybody's second car, and, you know, if you've got to go and come back, you use gasoline. Or maybe in California, they're okay with a grid that's down 10% of the time. In the military, you know, you've got to have that mission-first ultra-reliability of the platforms, So does the programmatic aspects of this, the educational aspects, do you plan for it to focus on the real military requirement and not, you know, the kind of pie-in-the-sky thoughts that a lot of people have about climate? Well, it's a very important question, and it's a critical thing to recognize, is that every challenge that we are placing in front of the cadets should be viewed through the lens and the context and the mission of the Department of Defense, which means that We need to ensure that any hardware and machinery that we are giving to our future soldiers and our current soldiers is as good, if not better, than anything we have fielded in the past. So with that in mind, yeah, we 100% are working to try to identify and find solutions that can achieve these goals of improving our infrastructure, improving our resilience, within the context of other additional future challenges that may come our way associated with climate. I think it's really important to recognize, though, that this is all a win-win. I mean, the Abrams concept that you alluded to has not been fielded. However, that diesel-electric system may very well deliver just as much, if not more, torque than the existing gas turbine engines that are available on the marketplace. On top of that, if we can create a vehicle that is more fuel-efficient, then we have fewer supply lines going out into the battlefield, which is quite literally protecting American lives. So it's important to recognize that these things actually go hand in hand and that they really are not mutually exclusive. By reducing our energy demand, we will quite literally create a more capable fighting force. But by reducing our energy demand, we will also reduce our environmental footprint and the greenhouse gas emissions that could be attributed to the Department of Army and the Department of Defense. So The goals of CERC is to put these very real-world challenges in front of cadets to ensure that they are aware of what the long-term implications are if we continue to consume fuel at the rate that we are consuming, but also to make sure that they are aware of what is the mission capability requirements of our hardware and how can we achieve that with sort of next-generation thinking of what our hardware could be. And the output of the consortium, will it be specialized courses and Will it even be a major, perhaps, for cadets that want to focus on the environmental and sustainability area? Great question. So I think the quick answer to that is that, yes, we already have, in many ways, curriculum that is addressing a lot of these aspects. So just as an example, I teach a course on thermodynamics, which focuses on, okay, how do internal combustions operate? We also have courses on power plants, and specifically in the context of power plants, what I mean is, what is our machinery that is being utilized to actually make a Bradley fighting vehicle as capable as it is. In addition to that, we've got courses on, say, wastewater management that are coming out of of Genie. We've got courses on chemistry. 
coming out of CLS. All of these topics are directly related to, okay, what type of materials, for example, could I utilize in the future that are more sustainable? Could I use you know, cross-laminated timber, for example, to be building some of our installations, which may have a lower greenhouse gas emissions, but just as sustainable in terms of long-term management of our infrastructure? From the wastewater management standpoint, you know, we will have cadets that will be going into USACE and have to consider what are some of the infrastructure challenges that all of our installations in the nation more broadly faces in terms of managing our water, our energy infrastructure, our roads. All of that is frankly wrapped up into the concepts of sustainability because it's not just about emissions, it's also about the long-term viability of the infrastructure that we build. And I can see the role that the faculty and the different departments at West Point will play in this. What does the Office of the Assistant Secretary of the Army for Installations, Energy, and Environment, what will their role be in all of this? So ASA INE has been an exceptional partner, and we've been working with them for a number of years on a variety of projects that span everything from understanding large outage events at installations to understanding what does it mean to roll out electrified non-tactical vehicles to all of our installations. So their role in a lot of this is helping ensure that the latest thinking, the latest problems that our installations are facing are being brought to the table for cadets to look at and see. So we pride ourselves here at the academy within the departments that I've mentioned on project-based learning, and that project-based learning involves questions that do not have easy answers, so questions that are not immediately available in a textbook. And the questions that do not have an answer in the textbook are the questions that are most contemporary right now. What are the emerging challenges that the Army is facing, and how can we put cadets in front of those challenges so that they know what they're going to need to face when they step into leadership roles in just the next few years? So ASA has been an exceptional partner, and they help bring really critical voice to our conversation about what are the most emerging immediate challenges that they are facing in order to improve sustainability, resilience, and address issues related to climate. And I'm guessing that, uh, you know, from the standpoint of a professor, you must see a lot of incoming interest among incoming cadets, just as people throughout, you know, the society entering engineering school care about these issues to begin with. Yes, we do. It is no exaggeration to say that there is a significant portion of youth that are very interested in trying to address the challenges related to climate change. And within the context of CERC, this absolutely is an opportunity for you know youth to try to solve these problems within the context of the mission of the Department of Defense, but that absolutely then has cascading benefits to uh, society more broadly. I mean, the expensive technology that will be deployed within our fighting vehicles will inevitably propagate outward into the supply chains that will impact consumer products within the civilian sector. And so helping streamline and reduce the amount of energy that the Department of Energy needs will quite literally have these beneficial impacts that will propagate further out into what society more broadly will need if we are going to reduce uh, our broader greenhouse gas emissions throughout the economy. Todd Davidson is an assistant professor of mechanical engineering, and he's deputy director of the Center for Innovation and Engineering at West Point. Thanks so much for joining me. Tom, it was great talking with you. I really appreciate it. All right. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the section chief of office and policy for the FBI's deputy director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's it's catching when when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there and I really grew up there, um, I, didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers and, you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we we actually work with a, a number of those too, and and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? 
well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. He thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI, who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, this, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, getting confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emerald Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I re realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that. It isn't one size fits all. And 
a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right? And diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay, and stay um, engaged and passionate. And then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES-level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply. Kristen here, reminding you not to do things. What I mean is, with same-day delivery for everything from gifts to groceries, you only have to do the things you want to do. To not do the other things, visit Shipt.com. That's S-H-I-P-T dot